I wanted to um, talk about holding on and letting go. And um, I wanted to reiterate Thai's second precept. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing and oppression, I undertake to cultivate loving-kindness and learn ways to work for the well-being of people, animals, plants and minerals. I undertake this evening to practice generosity by sharing my time, energy and resources with you all and all those in need. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that belongs to others. I will respect others, but also I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. There is a kind of monkey trap used in Asia. A coconut is hollowed out and attached by a rope to a tree or a stake in the ground. At the bottom of the coconut, a small slit is made and some sweet food is slipped in. The hole on the bottom is just big enough for a monkey to slide her open hand in, but does not allow for a closed fist to pass out. The monkey smells the sweets, reaches in to grasp the food, and then is unable to withdraw her fist. When a farmer comes, the monkey becomes frantic, but cannot get away. There is no one keeping the monkey captive except her attachment. Greed has been described as a major hindrance or obstacle in the uncovering of our true nature. In Pali, greed is described as tanha or thirst. It is the arising and identification with this energy which is at the heart of the second noble truth describing tanha as the cause of all our suffering. Greed is the strong expression of desire. It grasps the object in a tight fist and we are held in that grasp. So not only is the object of our desire imprisoned by the tightened fist, but we, like the monkey, are imprisoned as well. We are often driven by our desires for pleasurable experience. It may be beautiful views, seductive smells, it could be certain tastes of food, delights in the pleasure of touch or sound. We find ourselves being moved to create one pleasant experience after the other, to relieve our frustration, our boredom, our unhappiness. We turn towards the possibilities of pleasure as though we were iron filings magnetized to a current, finding ourselves reaching for particular times or places to quench our desire. How many times have we sat in this room today and reached for the pleasant experience or sensation in our meditation and turned away from those experiences or sensations that were unpleasant. 
probably so many times we couldn't even possibly count it. This thirst, and I'm sure we've experienced this all today as well, seems insatiable. We could, for example, have experienced the most wonderful lovemaking and immediately find ourselves thinking of a good cup of coffee. We could go for an ice cream, satiate ourselves with double mocha chocolate or butter brittle with caramel topping, and then decide that's not quite enough and we need to go for a movie. And then it's Chinese food, and then, and it just doesn't stop. Pleasure, displeasure, and neutrality are actually natural responses to our sensory experiences. Whatever we see, think, feel through touch or taste gives rise to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. What we will experience as pleasant will be determined by our past. Some of us love forests, some oceans, some love Italian food, some Chinese. There is actually no inherently pleasant sensation but rather responses determined by our past or karma. And there's nothing essentially wrong with liking Chinese food or forests, nor is there anything wrong or spiritually incorrect about going for an ice cream or going to the movies. There's actually a story of a woman who was looking out at the crashing and magnificent waves from a cliff. Um, in, on, uh, when she was hiking in Hawaii and she slipped and as she slipped she managed to grasp a root that was protruding out from these cliffs. Below her hundreds of feet were these very um, pointed rocks and crashing waves and as she looked up she saw a wild rat gnawing away at the root she was holding onto. To her right was the strawberry plant with the most perfect red ripe strawberry. And so as the rat was gnawing away on the root, she reaches out, grasps the strawberry, puts it in her mouth and delights in the taste as the root gives way. The delights and sweet joys that life brings us are gifts to be treasured. We are not on a path of denial or anorexia. Our life will bring us many such moments. It will also bring us many moments of pain and anguish. When we look at the landscape of our lives, we see the hills and valleys of happiness but we also see the deserts of boredom and discontent. We see our events refracted through the lens of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Sometimes we see ourselves collecting these pleasurable experiences and hoarding them, holding onto them tight in the hopes of finding long-lasting happiness. We find ourselves, even against our better judgment, driven to control and manipulate people, feelings, and events 
to extract what sweet pleasures we can. And this feels like our only path to happiness. We can look at this road. We can see ourselves doing it. And yet we also see at the same time that this road is bare and we are still discontented and sometimes desolate. Attachment to any event or feeling of pleasant or pleasure is like being perpetually subjected to a movie. It is the story we are always caught up in and everything else disappears. We are at the mercy of the characters. Tears roll down our eyes when there is an emotional scene, laughter when it's funny, terror when it's violent, but we are always a captive audience. Attachment keeps us a captive audience to the events in our lives. We are tied to the stories, and so there is often no space for love and generosity, compassion, and equanimity. Without being aware of it, each event in our life becomes a subway, taking us in a direction we did not consciously choose. We're being taken for the ride, enclosed in the train, underground, and isolated from the rest of life, hurtling through the tunnel of life's events. As soon as we exit this train, we find ourselves on another. Some trains will be more pleasant than others. Some will take us through Chinese restaurants and ice cream parlors. Some backpacking through the woods. But all the train rides are disconnected from the rest of the world. Why do we keep hopping onto these trains? Sugar. <laughs> Sugar is my train ride. I remember one three-month retreat where I found an exotic piece of chocolate. This is at Insight Meditation Society. Outside my door, we would give each other little gifts every now and again. And one day, to my delight, I found this wonderful piece of chocolate in front of my door. I conquered my immediate thirst to put it in my mouth and decided that I would wait until after lunch. So I had my lunch and I cradled this little treasure and went outside. It was one of those exquisite days where we'd had days of cold and snow or sleet and this particular day had opened up into a really warm sunny day and so I placed myself out on the grass I felt the sun on my face and I put the chocolate into my mouth and I was in the deva realms of heaven and <laughs> ecstasy. There were waves of such delight that I can't describe it. As soon as I finished, I was grasped by this overwhelming desire to have some more. <laughs> Without pretending at mindfulness, I marched myself off to the dining room in case some sweet yogi had put some more chocolate in a bowl <laughs> in the dining room. Alas, 
There was none there. I went back to my room and dragged my suitcase from under my bed in the hope that my last little stash had scattered and I had missed some morsel or remnant. Unashamed, I went to the office <laughs> when it wasn't even hours for yogis to go to the office. And I opened the door and they knew me. <laughs> and propelled forward, I stood there and the office manager, a little surprised to see me, said, how are you, Arena? And I said, Kathy, I'm dying for some chocolate. <laughs> she was somewhat taken aback, <laughs> but smiled. <laughs> and I said, could you get me some? <laughs> yes, exactly. I didn't want Hershey's. I wanted lint. <laughs> so driven for this desire of pleasure <laughs> that I wasn't even embarrassed by my request. <laughs> <laughs> and she was very sweet, actually, and brought me some later. <laughs> Yet sometimes it's not so easy to see how we can live with the second precept free of this craving and desire. One of my friend's landlords has raised the rent of the room in which she does work as a therapist 33%. She thinks it's very unfair. He thinks it's fair to charge whatever the market will hold or whatever the going rate is. It was also difficult for her because he hired a real estate agent to let her know of the changes so she felt she couldn't negotiate with him. However, she also rents a second room which she doesn't need and charges by the hour to therapists who are just starting up their practice or those with a very small practice. The money she receives from this rent contributes a significant amount to her total rent. I have some other friends who bought a house with two separate apartments. The rent from these apartments covers their whole mortgage. When they initially told me about this, I thought, oh, what a good idea. As someone who doesn't have a, a whole lot of income, this seemed like a possible way to buy and own a house. But then another one of my friends mentioned to me she would never <coughs> charge rent to cover her own rent, and she thought that it was very unfair. This stimulated me to investigate some previous assumptions that I've lived with around what actually is fair and what is greedy. My partner and I are in the process of selling our house. It's actually her house. And she is taking a loss. She um, bought the house at the height of the real estate market. And then when she split up with her previous lover, had it assessed, not by a professional assess uh, assessor, but by someone else. And he gave it this astronomical assessment. So she had to buy her lover out at this huge price. And there's just no way um, she's going to get it back. 
So we discovered in the process, actually at lying in bed one night, that there was a small crack right between the um, ceiling and the wall, and that possibly the crack could have been um, from moisture coming in from ice backed up on the roof. Should we investigate it? Should we spend more money and lose even more money by taking the wall down and seeing as that it is actually damp? Should we tell the people who might buy the house? Should we let it go in the hope that it's probably okay? What's fair and what isn't? I'm struck with the feeling when I talked about it that there was a tightening and clutching inside of me. I was feeling poor and scared. We would be left with even less money than we had. I could feel the inducement of trying to hold on to what we have by not saying anything. It was fear. Some of you must have heard of Peace Pilgrim. She walked from one end of, to the other um, in the, on the quest of communicating peace and love. She walked with only a dime and I think a toothbrush in her pocket. This constituted the sum of her belongings apart from the clothes that she wore. She said she never felt poor. In fact, she said she felt a tremendous abundance in her life and that her walk was her surrender to her God and her infinite faith in him. She found generosity in every town she passed through and no harm came to her whatsoever in all the years she was on the road walking alone night and day through all seasons. This also reminds me of a story of Evelyn Eaton, a medicine woman, who said one of the turning points in her life came when her house and all the very many beautiful things she had spent her life collecting were burnt down. She said she never felt richer and more abundant. What these stories highlight for me is our relationship or attitude towards faith and security. When I'm grasping, I feel a pervasive poverty. And like Scrooge in the Christmas story, this poverty has nothing to do with how much money I have or don't have. Rather, it has to do with my vision of the world. This experience of poverty I have is premised on isolation and the belief that the world will reproduce experiences which will leave me abandoned and isolated. No one will look after me, and so I'd better look after myself. And I'd better do it by controlling, by dealing, by hoarding, by building a fortress of security through the little financial resources that I have. I'd better hoard, not just for now, but I'd better hoard for the future as well. I don't have a pension plan after all, and I don't have any savings, so I better start right immediately, this very moment. Tension, horror builds up. My jaws clench, my stomach tightens, and I am spiraling down into one of my desperate clawings for security. 
It's very painful relating to ourselves and the world in this way. I think it might be one of the most painful of our experiences. And like Scrooge, again, the only way out appears to be letting go and opening our hearts. This opening is fed by a universe which is expressed through karma. Karma asks us to see that all our intentions and actions create energy forces and consequences which have real results in the world and in ourselves. On an intuitive level, we know this already. We know when we are generous, when we are able to genuinely give with an open heart, we experience joy. We also experience our connection directly with the life of those who receive our gift. We feel our relationship and our sense of isolation disappears. Knowing this can give us more energy to practice generosity. Hillary Clinton in her new book talks about the discipline of gratitude. She says, we are learning like all students a skill and the skill is generosity. Generosity, like all the paramis, can be cultivated and nourished to strength. And the opposite is also true. When we don't practice them, those muscles grow weak and we lose that particular capacity. The Dalai Lama says all spiritual practices are essentially about loving kindness. Loving kindness is an expression of generosity. We give and we care. This is our path towards freedom. By learning to open our hearts, we free ourselves from the attachments, from greed, from hatred, from the forces which lock us up in our prison of suffering and poverty. Living in compassion and generosity brings unlimited wealth into our lives. And I don't mean money, but the perspective in which we can see wealth wherever we are. Karma is our inspiration because it shows us the road map. It speaks of the valleys and bogs of suffering which we create for ourselves when we identify with our greed and hatred. I just want to emphasize that because each of us experiences greed and hatred. We talked about it this morning. Each of us will probably continue to experience greed and hatred. It is not the, those energies by themselves which bring us suffering, although they're tremendously uncomfortable, but it is grasping onto them, holding onto them like that monkey and not letting go which brings us tremendous suffering. It is that place where we get sucked into it as we get sucked into the movie of believing the story around it rather than cultivating that relationship of mindfulness and awareness of that experience of greed. The awareness or mindfulness gives us the ability to choose whether we want to buy into it or not. If we continue to exploit and hurt others through the identification with our greed and hatred, 
we will experience, karma tells us, a tremendous poverty of spirit. There will always, always be consequences to our actions. The high road of generosity can take us to nirvana, the Buddha says. It's a tricky path, though. It is easy for us to build the precepts or the vision we have into an image of who we think we should be. We see we are not this all-giving and loving person, and that companion judgment is never far away. I remember climbing uh, in New Hampshire mountains several months ago with a friend, and I'd really, really been looking forward to doing this climb up Mount Washington. And finally, after a ton of organizing and everything and packing our bags and getting everything together, we're on Tuckerman Ravine and we're climbing up, we're climbing up this path and someone in our party wants to go down. And I didn't want to go down with her. <laughs> I wanted to continue on the path. And um, luckily for me, someone else very generously went down with this woman. And afterwards, I, I saw myself and I, I watched the judgment come in. And for a moment, I felt awful. I was like, gosh, Arena, you really are selfish, you know. This, you, you, I know how wonderful it is when I'm hiking and I can't do any more. Someone is generous enough to hike back down with me. And there you were, having received that gift many times, and you couldn't do it. And it was so wonderful to see clearly that process of looking at our natural process, which is to grasp for what we want, to see the judgment, and to be present enough to say, got you, I'm not buying into it. The process is a natural one. I saw myself in a place where I wasn't generous, and that's enough. I can forgive myself for it, and I can make a commitment to give more generously next time. <clears throat> Holding a vision of our possibility includes in it the critical understanding of the process which enables us to actualize it. This process includes acceptance because our deepest healing comes from allowing whatever arises inside of us to be there without judgment, anger, or hatred. We can hold sweetly and softly our greed, our selfish desires, our anger. We can embrace them in our heart of understanding, and this loving decreases the intensity and strength of their energies, and they begin to affect us less and less. They challenge our equanimity less and less, and sway our self-love less and less. Acceptance is the great healer. In Century of the Wind by Eduardo Galeano, he talks about a title of Doctoris Honoris Causa being conferred on Darcy Ribeiro by the Sorbonne. Darcy Ribeiro, in his acceptance speech, says, I have failed 
as an anthropologist because the Indians of Brazil are still being annihilated. I have failed as a rector of the university because the reality I wanted to transform proved obdurate. I have failed as Minister of Education in a country where illiteracy never stops multiplying. I have failed as a member of the government that tried and failed to make agrarian reform or to control the cannibalistic habits of foreign capital. I have failed as a writer who dreamed of forbidding history to repeat itself. These are my failures and these are my dignities. Failure becomes a reason to honor ourselves. And honoring ourselves is a deeply revolutionary practice. It is a practice of kindness and caring. Spirituality and politics, our spirituality and politics, are one. We let go and we become generous. Life is not a fixed routine show which is scheduled. It is often uncooperative, difficult, and obstinate. And so we are given many opportunities to practice our revolutionary politics of kindness and caring. Mindfulness is essential for this politics because unless we are present, we don't know what is driving us. Is it anger or greed? We have to be there to catch it, to acknowledge it, and to be kind to it. We have to know what is going on. In the First Noble Truth, the Buddha said that life will invariably bring us many painful experiences, unpleasant experiences, and suffering. In the Second Noble Truth, he talks about this thirst, this tanha, this craving for sensory pleasures as one of the causes of our suffering. In the Third Noble Truth, he talks of the possibility of our liberation. And in the Fourth Noble Truth, he lays out the path to live which realizes or enables us to realize ourselves. Mindfulness is the key practice of this path. Our practice of mindfulness brings with it the vision of healing, which rests on the understanding that our life will always be filled with incidents and experiences, some of which will be unpleasant and others which will be pleasant. Our freedom arises as we release our attachments and aversions, that is our liking and our not liking, our wanting and our not wanting, to these pleasant and unpleasant experiences, to the pain in the knee, to the sleepiness in the meditation, to the boredom, to the wandering mind, to the fact that we haven't found a breath yet all day. All of this is the invitation to see clearly the mechanics of what actually brings about our suffering because it is truly and actually none of these events but our wanting and our not wanting. Our wanting and our not wanting are the crux of our oppression and of our liberation. 
the third Zen patriarch says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. Do not, do not remain in the dualistic state. Avoid such pursuits carefully. If there is even a trace of this and that, of right and wrong, the mind, our peace of mind, will be lost in confusion. Although the dualities come from the one, do not be attached even to the one. So let's sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.